Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. And I want to start by uh, just giving you a word of, um, I guess, a heads up, which is this sermon may seem really familiar to you. It's because of two things. Firstly, um, I had a big plan for how today was going to look, and my day was going to be filled with sermon preparation, and it all fell apart for various reasons. And so I did not have a lot of time at all to work on a sermon today, sadly. Uh, and I do apologize for that. Secondly, uh, as fate would have it, I, um, I've preached a sermon on the passage that uh, John Stott looked at in some detail uh, not so long ago, about a year ago. I preached a sermon on Luke 14, which is where John Stott drew uh, his initial kind of building argument from. So I took that, that sermon, which I did preach to CU20, um, so some of you would have heard it already not that long ago. So if it seems familiar to you, now you know why. Uh, but just to say, uh, I'm sorry. And um, hopefully God will still speak to you uh, in the midst of this all because what, is, what that is relied upon is in no way uh, dictated by how many times I've said the same thing to you. So Luke 14 is where we are at. So please, if you have a Bible, not John, Luke 14, there you are. Sorry, did anyone have a good day? Good. The auntie I know had a good day. I had a bad day. And most people I've spoken to today had a bad day. And so if you had a bad day, man, I feel you. I'm with you. Luke 14, starting in verse 25, going through to verse 35 is what we will be looking at today. Here we go. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and, not able to, and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one who is coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, cannot, uh, everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Why don't we pray together? God, we, we are challenged by a passage like this because we look inwardly and we see uh, there's still a lot of brokenness within us. There's still a lot of fear. 
a lot of double-mindedness, a lot of half-heartedness in many of us. And we look at this passage and we think, what am I to do with this? Am I truly following you? Am I truly a disciple or am I just kidding myself? God, in the midst of all that confusion, in the midst of all the uncertainty that that can produce in our hearts, I ask that the truth and grace of Christ would cut through and be able to plant just truth deep inside us and help us to grow rightly and to hear rightly tonight. So may you give us ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you read the chapter, but if you did, uh, one of the things that John says in the chapter that we read this week was that if you look at this passage, then we could look through it to the kind of Christian landscape today and say, there's a lot of half-built towers out there. There's a lot of people who have begun a walk in Christ and not seen it through for one reason or another. And I can say that uh, in my life, praise the Lord, I have not yet left my spiritual tower uh, uh, abandoned, yet I can look at my life and say, oh man, my life is filled with half-built things. Like, I don't know about you, but if I think back, it doesn't take me long to think of sort of projects that I was really passionate about at the beginning and then kind of like petered out and I got like this half-painted thing. Or, you know, like uh, gym equipment, like you know, weights or something that I bought and I haven't touched them in like years. Or even like actual gym memberships, which I would go and buy and then just neglect them completely. Uh, the books I've half-read. Uh, things that I've canceled the last minute because I forgot about them. Terrible kinds of uh, things like that that I have a lot and a lot of evidence for in my life. And so I'm kind of a person who does that. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think other people are like me, which is we often find ourselves getting really excited about something uh, and then the excitement wanes and we no longer have the passion to see it through and it all kind of comes to nothing. And when you look at that, that kind of propensity within us, uh, it very quickly comes head to head with this passage. There's a clash. That, that kind of mindset clashes very strongly with uh, the way that Christianity and following Jesus is presented from this passage. And I've got to tell you, this passage is not at all unique in the teaching of Christ. There is often that Jesus will say something like this, where he says, basically, if you want to follow me, it's going to take everything you got. It's just, that's the way it's going to be. There's no compromise. There's never a retreat from that position. At the same time, as he's saying that, he's offering people grace. He's offering people rest. And so there's this strange dynamic that's happening in it. But in the midst of it all, what we can see for and undeniably true is that Jesus never drops his standard and he makes sure that people are never unaware of the demands. I mean, he will address a crowd of thousands and say stuff like this. Most of them will leave. He'll be left with just a handful, a couple dozen people. He says, all right, let's do it. Let's keep going. I mean, he's like the anti-church planter in that sense, where like so much of the, the church movement today is about like, let's attract as many people as possible. Don't say anything offensive. Just let them come. And Jesus is like, he just says the most offensive things all the time, like at least in this way. He says things that are difficult to hear, that are very, very challenging for people. He's not at all seeker sensitive in that way. 
And so for him, people to, for people to count the cost was really important to him. He took that seriously and, and he would just say, look, it takes the death of self to follow me. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to uh, you know, renounce self, renounce self-interest and, and ambition. And he lives that in the sense that those who really knew him were only his closest disciples. Those who had left everything to follow him are those who he spends the most amount of time with, investing into them. Those are the ones who are the primary recipients of his Holy Spirit and, and those who he works through very powerfully uh, in the days that follow after his ascension. I mean, he just shows that it's there. And so there's no way, biblically speaking, of actually knowing Jesus without this kind of a commitment. It's one of those things that unless you're willing to kind of jump in both feet, you're never going to, you're never going to experience it. It just doesn't work any other way. There's no sort of like 30-day money-back trial of Jesus. Like it doesn't work that way. It just, it, it works in the sense of you have to jump in. And I, I likened it to sort of if, if you want to know what it's like to be something like a, a fighter jet pilot, something that will take an extraordinary long amount of time and effort and energy committed to it before you're even able to do it. There's no way of knowing what it's like to be a fighter jet pilot or an astronaut or something like that without putting in that commitment. It just doesn't work. Like maybe you can get an inkling of it somehow, but to actually feel what that's like, the only way to do it is to limit your life, to deny certain other possibilities for a consistent time and only after you've denied certain opportunities will further, deeper, richer opportunities open themselves up. It's just the way life works, but it's certainly a way that Christianity works as well. Without denying and renouncing self, you won't open up the opportunity to really know Christ, a far deeper, greater type of living. So for Jesus, he says, in this passage, he says, Disciples are those who give their first, their primary loyalty to me. The, the earliest Christian creed that we know is Jesus is Lord. That's the, the earliest creed of the belief of Christianity is the phrase Jesus is Lord, which was a very controversial statement at the time because people were meant to say Caesar is Lord, Caesar is empire, and they would, uh, emperor, excuse me, and they would say Jesus is Lord a renouncing of that type of thinking in favor of saying, no, my highest allegiance will always be to Christ. And so this is the type of loyalty we're called to have in him, a type of loyalty that honestly makes you vulnerable. When you approach the type of commitment it takes to be committed to Christ, you essentially have to put yourself in a place of vulnerability thinking, I'm going to put my hope in this to the degree that if it fails, I'm done. Like, I'm ruined. Like, the, I, there's, no, there's no plan B in this. Like, if, if this doesn't come through, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if I die and, like, he's not the one sitting on that throne, I'm finished. Like, I'm done. That's the kind of commitment that Jesus is talking about. And it's kind of like if you've ever been rock climbing before, there's a point in the rock climbing where you have to sort of let your weight fall onto the rope that's holding you. You know, if you're going rock climbing, you climb all the way up and up and up, 
and it, you're not going to be able to climb all the way down and down and down. Uh, it's probably not wise and it's certainly not efficient. So what you have to do is let go and let the rope catch you. The rope catches you and then you descend down. It's that kind of moment of letting go and thinking, I hope this rope catches me and if it doesn't, I'm in trouble. Faith in Christ kind of looks like that moment of letting go of your life, letting go of the things you've been placing your hopes and your, your aspirations in, letting go of your own ambition, your own loyalty to other things and saying, it's you. I'm giving it all over to you. So we renounce the things that the Bible would call sin, the patterns of life that it says, no, don't do that. We renounce, we let go of it. We renounce self, ambition, priorities that don't line up with his priorities. We let go of it. Instead of waking up in the morning feeling autonomous, we wake up in the morning feeling, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And we acknowledge Christ. We acknowledge him in our public lives. We acknowledge him in our private lives. We say, you have reign and mastery over these areas. Uh, I will stand for you publicly and I will acknowledge you publicly. I will obey you even when people are not watching me, when it's not just for the show. I will follow you when it's just me and you together. I acknowledge you in every area of my life. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, that type of commitment. And when you look at that part of the beginning where he says, unless you hate your mother and brother and everyone else, is not literally meaning late, but it's you, hate, excuse me. But the way that the Bible uses the word hate is often to sort of choose against. So it'll say something like, Jacob I have chosen, Esau, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, it says that in the Old Testament. It doesn't literally mean that he hated Esau. It meant Jacob I, is it Isaac? Am I getting it wrong? Isaac and Esau, Jacob and Esau. Oh, Jacob and Esau. I always doubt myself. Anyway, I've chosen Jacob. I haven't chosen Esau. But you still, you see, Esau is blessed by God still. So you can't say that Jesus who commands us to love even our enemies is then the next minute going to say, oh, love your enemies, but hate your mom. Like, no, it's, it doesn't look that way. Like, obviously, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, I am your first love. I am the one that if it came down to a choice between obeying me and obeying them, you obey me. And I've, I mean, I've had clashes like this with my parents. I've had clashes in which I've had to say, look, as much as I love you, I love God more. That's not easy for a parent to hear, but um, it's conversations that sadly had to happen from time to time. I'm very grateful, not very often. Uh, certainly for other people, I've seen them have to choose God over family, and it, the results can be really, really hard to bear at times. Being a Christian means that what following Jesus will look like will, may cost you a lot. It may cost you things like your job, your friends, your wealth, your family. It may, it, like, it not, not necessarily that it will, but it certainly might. It certainly has for many saints before you. And so you may be asked to give these things up too. And so Jesus is asking, are you ready? Are you committed to me to the point that you would be able to let go of these things if the day came? Now, many will hear that and it'll rub them the wrong way in this culture. This culture has a very high value of, you know, it's okay to be, it's, it's okay to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't take it too far. And they, they feel that way a lot of times about religion too. I mean, certainly when I would 
tell friends of mine, oh, hey, look, I've become a Christian. They'd say, oh, that's great. And then I would start to change. And they're like, why are you changing? I'm like, well, because I'm a Christian. They're like, you shouldn't really take that religion thing too seriously. You know, it's okay to have a little bit of it. It's okay to like, just have a nice amount of cushion to help the unpleasantness of life you know, feel a bit better. But you know, just don't take it so seriously. And that's really something you'll hear implicitly or even explicitly out of people's mouths saying, you know, you shouldn't take that Christian, Christianity stuff too seriously. The Bible is all for moderation in many ways, except when it comes to your allegiance to God. There it is to be extravagant. It's to be over the top. It's to be a, a radical, a fundamentalist, just about the right things. Be a fundamentalist about generosity. Be a fundamentalist about mercy, not about suicide bombing or something terrible like that. Be a fundamentalist about grace and about like just lavishly loving other people. That's the kind of thing we are called to have. We're called to place our heart in Christ so that what we, lo we love the things that He loves and where our lives split, we side with Him. Remember that Jesus cannot be known apart from this, primarily because the type of life He's going to call us to is going to bring us into these places where it takes a deep commitment to keep going. It takes a radical, faithful abandon to actually enter into some of these situations of life. I love this great metaphor that uh, N.T. Wright uses. He says this, Think of Jesus as the leader of a great exhibition, forging a way through high, a high and dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to villages cut off from the rest of the world. If you want to come any further, the leader says, you'll have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. You probably won't find it again, and you'd better send your last postcards home. This is a dangerous route, and it's very likely that several of us won't make it back. But we can understand that. We may not like the sound of it, but we can see why it would make sense. That's the same reason why it makes sense that Jesus is calling us to this type of commitment. He's saying the life that I'm calling you to will take this kind of a commitment and nothing short of that will do. You have to let go of things. You have to be ready to give everything, even your life, because this is the kind of life that we're being called to. I love the, what John Stott says in that chapter we read. He says, if then you suffer from moral anemia, take my advice and steer clear of Christianity. If you want a life of easygoing self-indulgence, then do not, whatever you do, become a Christian. But if you want a life of self-discovery, deeply satisfying to the nature God has given you, if you want a life of adventure in which you have the privilege of serving Him and other people, if you want a life in which, you in which to express something of the overwhelming gratitude you are beginning to feel for Him who died for you, I urge you, yield your life without reservation and without delay to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can leave here tonight with your life intact. You can leave here tonight with nothing really changing. You're still in charge. You're still in control. You can have the life of pleasing yourself. But if you do that, you will not have Christ. You will not have eternal life. That is the choice that lays before you. 
And this is what Christ lays out to the crowd. And he does it in an interesting way because he lays out this metaphor of towers being built or wars being decided upon. And it's this interesting point that he's making, and it seems like he's doubling up the same point in the same parable, in, by two parables that kind of say the same thing. And, and I'll admit, they say almost the same thing. But I didn't really notice it until I really studied this, pas this passage that the, the two parables actually have slightly different points that they're trying to make. The meaning of the first parable of the tower is Jesus saying, look, count the cost, see if you're ready to commit to me. See if you can bear the cost of committing to me. Because if you cannot bear that cost, then you can't do it. That's just, you know, you look foolish for even trying. So the first one is he's asking them, can you bear the cost of following me? But the second one about the king and the army, it's, it's a slightly different thing because what he's saying is, can you bear the cost of refusing me? Because in the second parable, the army is coming against the king. He's not sitting there with a choice of, maybe I should build a tower or not. I don't know, I got five already. Maybe I need another. Eh. No, there's an army coming. He has to decide, do I rise up and fight or do I send terms for peace? This is not a decision that I have the luxury of making. This is a decision that I have to make. It's before me. I need to respond. And the question that Jesus is asking upon his audience at this point is, can you afford to refuse my demands? Can you bear the cost of refusing me? Because if you choose to resist, then you're resisting God. But if you choose to make peace, then you're making peace with God. This is a very, very interesting point that Jesus is making, and it follows the logic of really the choice that's before us. Like I said, you can choose to leave tonight with your life intact, but by doing so, you will not have a part in Christ. You will not have a part in eternal life. Is that something you can really bear the cost of refusing? The logic of the situation that we're in is if God exists, we owe him everything. We owe him everything. And I, that's a point I've made multiple times throughout this, this uh, series that we've been going through. To refuse him or to continue to live oblivious to him is something that will be a cost we have to bear at one point or another because if he exists, we owe him everything. Everything goes to him. This is the choice that's before us. God is approaching. That approaching army is the approaching day of judgment, the day where I'll face him. And what are we to do? What can we do? In this situation, it there was a, I was learning about this, uh, I guess, folklore, like Hawaiian folklore, which is uh, about these kind of supernatural creatures that they, they say are kind of on the island called the Hawaiian night marchers, like marching. And they're these sort of ghosts, I guess, uh, but like ghosts of former kings. Uh, and they only come at night, but if you see one, you're basically dead unless you do this, unless you take off all your clothes, lie prostrate on the ground, 
close your eyes and pee yourself. Like wet your, wet your non-existent pants at this point. Just like wet yourselves. That is the only way that you are essentially being humble enough, humiliated enough, sort of contrite enough in their presence that they might let you live. And so that's the way that the folklore works. Like if you see this thing, just take everything off, lie down and pee your pants. Like that's the way that you maybe will live at that point. And it's thankfully God doesn't require that of us. But the, the idea of being face to face with something that demands our everything, that exposes our utter uh, weakness and utter failure to live up to that is something which we need to take seriously. Jesus is calling us to a commitment, but it's not a commitment that's unfair. It's not a commitment that is unwise. It's a commitment that makes sense because of what he's offering us is a way to make ourselves right before God. Now, it will take commitment in every area of life. It will take a willingness to do what he is asking us to do. And then after we've done what he's asked us to do, to trust him with whatever comes out of that. Whatever comes next, I trust you, God. I trust you in the midst of it all. So it takes this willingness to step out and willingness to bear with a trusting heart whatever comes next. And some of you may be thinking, but what about grace? Isn't this all that grace that we're talking about, that Jesus pays the cost. You know what? This is actually, this fits in and forms with us the dynamic by which grace would work. Because with grace, what, we're not, what Jesus is not asking for at this point is total obedience, as if we have to ascend to a level of perfection before we can be his disciples. He's saying, being my disciple takes commitment. It takes total commitment. And that's what we're called to do, is commit ourselves. Not to wait until we're perfect, not to try necessarily to attain perfection before we can feel worthy. We are called to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm all in. And the way that we do that, the way that we can even attempt to do that and bring our hearts to a place of being ready to do that, is by looking at the grace that we've been shown. You know, this commitment is born out of the total grace that he's had towards us. It, it evokes out of us a total abandonment in response. When you see the fullness of his love, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his sacrifice, the only right response to that kind of self-giving is to give yourself in return. It's to completely love and to give over yourself, to say, just take me, take me. I'm ready, you've done it all, and I want to just fall into that. And over time, we grow in our understanding and our application of what it means to make Jesus at the priority of our life. Kind of as Christians, what we are is in a constant state of renovation. We're constantly fixing and rebuilding and ripping up and digging again. And we are the Montreal of, of beings. <laughs> we're, it's, we're just constantly being renovated. We're constantly being built upon and constructed. That's 
part of this dynamic that we're in. We commit ourselves to that process and when we do it, it's actually possible to be done with joy. It's possible to do this with joy because we see that what we've been called to is better. Better because self-denial is actually the pathway towards self-discovery. Mastering oneself is the way to freedom and this is what we are called to. And it enables us to be distinctive. And I love that way that it ends with the, the, the beautiful thing that Jesus says about salt, the salt of the earth. It allows us to be distinctive in this way because it will set us apart radically. A commitment like this, we will become the kinds of people that are able to make a change in this world, able to do what God is calling us to do and to, to bring more beauty and bring more love into this world. N.T. Wright, I love it, he says this, he says, through, uh, he says, the salt of the earth are the people through whom God's world is kept wholesome and made tasty. I like that. <laughs> made tasty. We are the tastemakers of this world. You know, the interesting thing about this, what you will find, if you take, and I'm sure all of us who have been Christians for a long time will admit to this as well, Within this great sense of commitment and self-denial, self-renouncing and, and sort of letting go and, and clinging on to something new, you may think that it is something that is laborsome and difficult, but actually, by and large, I find the opposite to be true. What we are really all looking for in this world, things like comfort and belonging, and beauty, companionship, acceptance, freedom, meaning, all of these things that every human being is longing for deep in their heart, the, the reality is, though we try and find all kinds of all these things in all kinds of different places, they're all found in Him. There's people out there that are looking for comfort or acceptance. They're looking for Jesus. They just don't know it. The people who are looking for meaning, and acceptance, they're looking for Jesus. Freedom is found in Christ. Beauty is found in Christ. Mercy and grace is found in Christ. All of it is found in Him. And so at the end of the day, when we get to the end of our life, and it, should, it ought to be a life in which we have let go and given up and renounced in order to follow after Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, we may look back and, and be tempted to think of it as, wow, look at all I've sacrificed. But at the end of the day, I will look back and think, look at all I've gained. Look at all that I have gained from following after Him. I hope that, that will be my, my confession. I really want it to be because that will be the truest thing that I've seen so far in my life. So I want to end with uh, David Livingston, who made a quote of that same kind of thing. David Livingston, by a worldly standard, sacrificed a lot in order to do what he believed was following God. And he, he's quoted as saying this, For my part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my time in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, in the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of, of a glorious destiny hereafter? away with the word sacrifice, rather say it is a privilege, 
anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and again with the foregoing of the, modern, of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause our spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in sorry, which shall be revealed in all for us. I never made a sacrifice. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we hear words like this and we we link it up to what Jesus is saying in this passage. And for me, the, the picture is becoming clearer, God. The way to freedom, to beauty, to meaning, it's, it's when I let go of the things that I so fearfully and, and selfishly cling on to. The things which deep in my heart I believe are really feeding me and yet when I look at the words of Christ, I recognize they're poisoning me, they're killing me. You are offering me freedom and meaning and acceptance and grace. Oh, how foolish I am so often, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, you may cure us of our foolishness and our fear. You may help us to see truly what you are offering to us, to not reject some gross caricature of Christianity, but to look at what he really is offering and jump for it. God, may you help us, those who have not yet made that jump, help us to do so tonight. And for all of us who have previously made that jump and then maybe still are struggling to live up to it. God, may you help us tonight to find some breakthrough in that struggle. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalog of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.